You're listening to episode 41 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for Birds on the Black. I'm Tara, he's Alex, and it's time to talk about Tommy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show once again, Tara and Alex with you and a lot I feel like has happened this week. We'll try to get to some of it, most of it, all of it. I don't know. We'll see what happens in the next half hour, 45 minutes or so. But what I do know is that as it stands in the moment that we're recording this on Tuesday night, the Cardinals are a first place team again in the NL Central, just barely ahead of the Chicago Cubs by half a game. At this point, the Cardinals are down in their game just as of moments ago against uh, the Milwaukee Brewers in St. Louis, who just took a 2-1 lead while the Cubs are tied against the San Francisco Giants 3-3 in the bottom of the fifth. So we'll keep an eye on both of those games as we go along. The division continues to be tight and interesting. Alex, I feel like it's not quite how we expected it to be tight and interesting, but nonetheless, the end result is mostly the same as we expected. Yeah, uh, 39 games to go, and I have a feeling it's going to be a long 39 games, if that makes sense. I I think a lot's going to happen uh, over the course of these next six weeks. It's going to feel like an eternity, Uh, but it should be fun at least. Yeah, it is exciting, and it continues to be exciting, if not a little bit stressful in the process. One of the things that seems to be causing the most angst right now is actually the well continues to be the starting lineup on any given night for the Cardinals and that seems to be primarily because of one player well I guess one player that's sort of dictating playing time for everyone else obviously at this point I'm talking about Tommy Edmond I don't think it's a big secret that he's become a hotly contested subject matter in the last couple of weeks and I don't know about you Alex but I feel like this is pretty unfair to Tommy Edmond because, I mean, he's going out there and, and just playing the innings he's given, playing the the position that he's given, and really doing a fairly decent job of it. I just don't know if he's the player that you build the rest of the roster around, and that seems to be where the heat is coming from as far as the complaints against Mike Schultz right now. I don't know. It just seems like it's a very weird position for Tommy Edmund to be in because it's not his fault, but at the same time, boy, to, to live and die with Tommy Edmund seems like a strange thing to be so set on at this point in the season. Yeah, it's definitely not Edmund's fault. And what's funny is it feels as though it's reached a fever pitch in the last two weeks and he's been kind of good the last two weeks. Yeah. It was that stretch before that where he's been where he was really bad. But regardless, yeah, it's what you said. The issue is penciling him into the number two spot, which is where I, I think most of us agree, most uh Saber Incline people agree that's where your most important hitter should probably be. One, because he's going to get a few more plate appearances um than the guy, you know, in that three spot right behind him, and that negates you know, somewhat the, I, I guess, the opportunity for guys on base that the guy in the three hole might have versus the guy who bats second. So that's kind of like the reasoning as to why you would want your best hitter batting second. Edmund is not your best hitter. Even with the last <laughs> two weeks, he has, what, a, an 88 WRC plus. Um, I, I think heading into tonight, he finally got his on base above 300, uh, although I, that's probably gone back below 300 after um, his uh, play appearances this evening. I really don't get it. I was actually thinking about this. Can I kind of like spring a pop quiz on you to uh, see what you think Schultz's reasoning is here? Go for it. So this is, I'm going to give you four options as to why you think Schultz is batting Edmund second. Okay. And you don't have to go all in on one option. Like you can kind of be like, I'm I'm 75% this one, but maybe also a little like 25. Like there could be more than I guess one right answer. Okay. Okay. So option number one for why Schill is batting Tommy Edmond second in the lineup. He thinks that's where Edmond's stats entering today belong. Okay. So Edmond's slash line entering today, I should tell everyone, is 271, 302, 425. 
88 WRC plus. And in Schilt's mind, he thinks that's where uh, a hitter of that profile should be. That's the first option. Second option yep. is he doesn't think that's where Edmonds' stats belong. However, he thinks Edmonds, Edmonds, he thinks, what is this guy's name, Edmonds? <laughs> I, keep, I keep thinking about Jim Edmonds. All right. But he thinks Edmonds is better than what his stats have shown so far. Okay. And he thinks he's so much better that he actually does belong in that two spot. And, and it's just like any minute now, he's going to break out. Okay. Option number three, he just really doesn't care that much about the lineup. One day he happened to put Edmund in the two spot and he just doesn't care enough at this point to change it. All right. Okay. And number four, he knows Edmund doesn't belong in the, in the two spot. He's seen how angry it's making all of us. And he's doing <laughs> this because he enjoys that, <laughs> which I, I should add, that would be the answer I would respect that that would be the answer I would respect the most yeah but those are your four options um I can okay. go through them again if you want to or you can if, if I if I if there's something I didn't say that you think uh covers it better uh you can I guess okay so, it's, know, so it's none of the above that's where he should be because of what his numbers are that's where he should be because of what his numbers can be mm-hmm. he, doesn't he doesn't really, really care. care yeah <laughs> and he's, he's too lazy just, to change it basically he's he's just trolling the internet Yes, which, which is what we deserve, I guess. Yeah, I would love for that to be <laughs> the reason. Uh, but no, honestly, I think it's... <sighs> okay, so I think of those four, I would lean more towards option number two, that he feels like it's a place that Edmund can be successful. Um, but I feel like that's a little bit of a, a diversion from what your explanation actually was. I don't know that even as positive as Mike Schilt tends to be, he would say that Tommy Edmond is by everything he's shown him on paper and off a prototypical two hitter. I think that I, I feel like perhaps Mike Schilt values those sort of clutch moments more than he should where Tommy Edmund came through in a situation where the team really needed something, or he came in as a pinch hitter and proved that he could handle the pressure of the moment, or, you know, he kind of just quietly does his job wherever he's asked to play, that sort of thing. So I don't know that I would say I think Mike Schilt is clueless enough about numbers to say, yeah, those numbers look like a two-hole hitter. I don't think he's careless enough with the lineup to think, well, it doesn't really matter as long as he's in the lineup. Otherwise, why would he have stuck with Matt Carpenter at leadoff for so long, insisting that it was the right place for him? So I guess I, I would say that to me, from what we've heard from him, I get the feeling that he's sort of bought into Tommy Edmond as this like ultimate super utility guy that's too good to be on the bench and they need what he's capable of, even if it's not what he does all the time consistently, which is a really terrible reason. (laughs) But I feel like from what I can gather, that's sort of where he's landed. So what you just said, I think, is defensible in terms of playing Tommy Edmund. Oh, of course. Because I think Tommy, as I've said now several times, I think Tommy Edmund is a fun player and can be valuable to this team. But it still is not, and believe me, this isn't your fault, it's hard coming up with the defense. Um, it's still not a defense for batting him second, though. Yeah. The idea of, oh, I believe in this guy, you know, his kind of like, uh, um, you know, jack of all trades, stuff like that, blah, blah, blah. That still doesn't equate to best hitter in the lineup, therefore we get him second, therefore we bat him second. Let me ask you this, because I think it's yeah. sort of maybe the other side of the same coin is there a better defense for batting Tommy Edmonds second or for batting Colton Wong eighth? Um, I don't know. You know, I, I think it's more egregious to be batting Tommy Edmonds second. And that's no, um, you know, I don't mean that as a slide on Colton Wong, who's, who's been wonderful, arguably our best hitter. And maybe that's the whole point here is like, who who really is our best hitter yeah. for that second spot? Well, that's, really that's why I point. asked that question, because I feel like we've had an issue all season trying to fill in that one, two spot with the right guys at the right time. Right now, I feel like part of that is the resistance to moving Colton Wong. But again, I said this before, I've been a proponent of leaving Colton Wong alone when he's playing well because he's such a confidence guy. But at the same time, 
I'm not sure that right now that's the best defense for <laughs> what the options are available to them. So yeah, I think ultimately what I would say is that there's not a clear number two guy on this roster right now, unless you look at Colton Wong. And if you're not going to move him, then I guess there's as good a reason as any to leave Tommy Edmund there because, you know, you got to put somebody in that spot. I don't know. It's yeah. There's not a good answer, but I feel like that's sort of how I see Mike Schilt coming up with this solution. Yeah. In, in regarding Wong, I would like to see someone uh, do kind of a deep dive on this. And maybe someone already has and I missed it because the, the reason why I said I, I think it's more egregious to bet Edmund second than Wong eighth is not necessarily because I think that's where Wong should be batting because I don't, but I'd like to look at his splits to see how often he has batted eighth this year, because that could in some way really contribute to his, his stats. Um, yeah. You know, the fact that they're pitching around him, which uh, to get to the pitcher, which is going to help his on base, obviously, I, I guess the flip side of that is then, you know, he seems to be hitting the ball pretty well. So if he is, um, you know, that doesn't, I guess what I'm saying is, uh, if that's the case, then they're probably not throwing him that many great pitches to hit, but he's still finding ways to, you know, get plenty of hits. Um, I'm not explaining this well at all. But, yeah, my point is I, I, I love Colton Wong. I know you love Colton Wong. I'm not quite ready to say because of what he's done the last uh, six weeks or eight weeks that he should be, you know, leading off or, bat- or batting second, um, even with this lineup. Uh, but I totally agree with you that he probably doesn't necessarily need to be batting eighth. Yeah, I think it's an interesting – uh, Mike Schilt made an int- interesting comment about lengthening the lineup yeah. as the reason yeah. for Colton Wong batting eighth, which yeah. I find this this whole lineup thing so interesting because I'm not sure it matters as much as we think it does. <laughs> I'm not sure that it ends up generating as much of a difference as we'd like to think that it does. And I know that there, there are people who have written a lot about it and broken it down in a lot of different ways and really come down on either side of the issue, right? There are people who say your best hitter should absolutely be hitting second. There are people who say the batting order doesn't really matter as much as we think it does. I think it's an interesting conversation because yes, it seems like you would want the guy who's hitting best for you at the moment to get more at bats, (laughs) but also Colton Wong has come up in some big spots as of late, where if you have your weaker hitters in the six, seven, eight hole, you maybe don't get those opportunities there. So I think there's, it's a discussion to be had, but I think the point is Tommy Edmond doesn't really seem to be the guy that you fit everyone else around at this point. And that's what's happening, right? It's Tommy Edmond is going to play and they're going to fit him into a spot defensively in order to make that happen, whether that is best for the defensive lineup of the team or whether that is best for the opportunities for a Lane Thomas or a Randy Rosarena, or, you know, it just seems like it's Tommy Edmonds world right now and everyone else is living in it. Yeah. And like you said at the right beginning of this, it does seem really unfair to him uh, because it creates that situation where we aren't necessarily, uh, complaining about him we're more complaining about the process but it doesn't sound like that it sounds if uh you know if i was one of his like relatives or his mom i would kind of be like offended by the way a lot of cardinals fans have been acting toward him um speaking of moms can we talk about uh paul de young's mom real real quick yes Uh, we can (laughs) uh, I'm, i'm trying to put myself in his shoes do you think uh like do you think he He's em- he's embarrassed by his mom. And I don't mean that like his mom's awesome. Don't get me like she's not an embarrassing person, but she's just very much a mom. He's yes. uh, mom in all caps and especially online. Uh, do, do you think like that drives him crazy? Like, oh my gosh, mom's tweeting again. Or do you think, because uh, I, I think it, I'm thinking back to how I was at that age. And I think I would have been kind of like cowering, but he seems to be fine. with. It. He seems to be a pretty well-adjusted family guy. (laughs) So uh, I think the relationship there is probably pretty good. But at the same time, no kid wants their mom to be all up in their business all the time. So I don't know. What's a good example of uh, Paul DeYoung's mom uh, being very much a mom online? Um, Okay. Well, he knocked the M out of Big Mac land last night, right? 
she definitely tweeted that it was M for mom mm-hmm. and for Emily, his sister. <laughs> so, I mean, it just like all the time, all about it, which is amazing. I mean, to, I, to play this game at this level and to, to go through the failure that you have to, to be successful, having that kind of support system has to just be the greatest thing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at the same time, it's still a kid with a mom who is all about it and i imagine that didn't just happen after he made it to the big leagues <laughs> so i bet his uh his little league games his high school games i bet those were all really interesting experiences uh his mom andrea i think is wonderful if she ever wants to come on a podcast we'll totally make <laughs> it happen but uh yes like baseball mom to the extreme yeah yeah uh <laughs> And, and believe me, I didn't mean, you know, certainly didn't mean as insult to her. I, I, in fact, I hope, I hope she's trying to embarrass him. I think that would be, uh, <laughs> that would be a very much a, a mom move. But. I, I also don't get the feeling that Paul DeYoung embarrasses particularly easily. He just is so even keeled that maybe he just isn't all that worried about it. I should also mention, not in relation to Paul DeYoung, but to the Cardinals in general, Harrison Bader has finally returned to the Major League roster, which meant that Randy Rosarena, who was not getting playing time in favor of Tommy Edmond and Jairo Munoz, has returned to Memphis, and uh, Harrison Bader just walked as the tying run in this game. Or he walked as the guy at the plate to bring in the tying run with the bases loaded, I should say. Uh, so, Big night for Harrison Bader in his return. Uh, That's nice to see. It does sort of continue the complication of playing time, especially when, you know, you build a lineup around Tommy Edmund. But I think we've we've sort of established that this seems like a strange scenario that's very unfair, but also maybe not as significant as we're all making it out to be. Yeah, and that's another annoying thing about this argument is I think that or this discussion, I should say, is that I think most people do agree that, you know, the batting order is not the most important thing in the world. Uh, But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Um, So, you know, you almost feel silly sometimes, like, discussing this ad nauseum. But just because it doesn't, just because it's not the most important thing in the world, there's still very little excuse to batting Edmund second. So I think it is worthy of I, I, I think it is worthy of all the commotion it's caused and, and the discussion that we've had on it. One thing I will say, it's, I guess kind of changing the subject, is let's say the Cardinals lose this game tonight. We have Fowler up with the bases loaded, uh, 2-2 in the six, and, and the Cubs win. And so we slip back to a half game behind the Cubs and in that wild card spot. You know, we're talking about like, well, who is our good hitter? Who should be the guy batting second? And the reason why I bring up like the wild card thing is I was comparing like the Cardinals and Nats earlier. And it's amazing that they're both kind of in the same spot because on the paper, the Nats look so much better. Yeah. But like, like they have position players who, you know, have are like Rendon's like five wins above replacement. Then you have Soto, uh, you know, shoot, if Howie Kendrick was on the Cardinals, he might be their best hitter. Um, and that doesn't even mention their pitchers. Uh, <laughs> their pitching staff by warp just like completely blow, blows ours away. Uh, Scherzer, and then there's Strasburg, who Strasburg's kind of like a fascinating guy. Like, yeah. we don't ever talk about him, but I feel like three or four more good seasons and we might be talking about like a, a Hall of Fame career. Am I crazy in saying that? Like, he's had a really good career yeah. that we don't talk about which is odd given how he just like bursts onto the scene like a rocket and like a name that everyone knew. But anyway, my whole point here is like the Cardinals are still in very good position, uh, not only with the division, but the wild card. And it's, I don't even quite know how they're doing it. (laughs) Yeah, it is really interesting. And I think that's why, so, you know, this Tommy Edmund conversation just keeps going ad nauseum. And at some point, I know I'm just going to get tired of having it, whether it's right or wrong as far as his playing time or where he is in the lineup. I think we can talk and talk and talk about it. The members of the media can ask and ask and ask about it. It's not going to change if Mike Schultz still thinks that it's worth doing. But at this point, we can also say, look, (laughs) they're a first place team and they're batting Tommy Edmund second. So it's clearly not the thing that's costing them the most. But at the same time, you start thinking, okay, what would happen if someone better <laughs> was in that spot. And that's where I think, you know, you look at the these lineups on paper, whether it's the Nats or whether it's the Cubs even in the division, 
the Cardinals still don't have the offense that we expected them to have because Matt Carpenter's not hitting like he should be. I would argue that Paul Goldschmidt still isn't quite the Paul Goldschmidt we all expected to see. Marcelo Zuna has been pretty streaky. I mean, at times he'll look like, you know, you don't want to try to throw anything past him. And at times, you know, just throw a pitch that breaks outside and he's going to fall over swinging at it. So there's enough inconsistency in those guys that are supposed to be the big hitters, supposed to be the one, two, three guys. I mean, add Paul DeYoung into that mix, the home run into the big Mac land sign was cool, but that's not really been his consistent (laughs) MO as of late. So you're right. They don't really have a guy who profiles as, look, this is the guy that we know we want in that two spot, or we know we want batting third. They have guys that should be that guy. And that's why I think it's interesting how you phrase that question initially about Tommy Edmond. Is this a guy who's batting second because that's where his numbers say he should be? Or is this a guy who's batting second because that's where he should be regardless of what his numbers are. Because I feel like you could say that about Matt Carpenter. You could say that about Paul Goldschmidt. You could say that about Paul DeYoung. Like they don't have a guy that's consistently hitting like a number two hitter should be. And that is part of the problem. No, but at least they have guys with, I guess, track records. Yes. Um, and so I, I was, I don't Absolutely. know if you could hear me laughing um, while you were talking, but did you see Fowler? What Fowler I did. did <laughs> um, and Braun, I, I, that was Braun's fault, right? Like Braun needs to catch that ball. Yeah, I would have to I see mean, it again lucky. because I was just watching to make sure it dropped, but I'm pretty <laughs> okay. sure it was Braun. Yeah, okay. Uh, anyway, Fowler just cleared the bases with um, a double that probably should have been uh, maybe not a routine catch, but pretty close to it. Anyway, no, I, I, uh, I think we're mostly on the same page with Edmund. It's just a odd situation, um, very befitting of an odd team, I guess. My question to you then, the last thing I really have to say about Edmund is where should he be hitting or who should be hitting second instead? I bat Goldschmidt second, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Even though he's he's had some awful at-bats tonight and he's had some awful at-bats lately, um, but we know he can hit for power. Um, and his strikeouts, which kind of did cool off a little bit. Remember, he was striking out so much in the beginning yeah. of the season. But he still strikes out a lot. But that doesn't necessarily bother me too much in the two-hole because, um, you know, a strikeout with uh, no outs and a runner on first uh, sometimes is better than actually putting the ball in play, like what Edmund did today, which um, resulted in a double play and ended that promising situation when Bader let off the inning with a triple and no outs. Um so even though he's had an awful season and I'm, I don't even really want to think about the extension and if, if this is like the Goldschmidt um, going forward and what it might look like in four or five years, uh, I still bat him second. Um, mostly not because of Goldschmidt, but more of a reflection on the, the, less, ah, excuse me, the rest of the lineup and not really having an obvious candidate. I think he's the most obvious one. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I think... No, I was going to say, you asked me where I bet Edmund, probably, you know, seventh or eighth. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. I do think that when you start moving these pieces around, it gets less defined than you'd like for it to be. And I think that's part of the problem. We talked about that going into this season, that the Cardinals, yes, getting Goldschmidt was good. They probably still needed one other bat to really fit into a model lineup, I guess, but they don't have that yet. So you're sort of seeing the result of that with with Tommy Edmund. I do think the the one other thing that that makes it hard to, I guess, defend Tommy Edmund in that position is that it means guys like Tom, uh, like Lane Thomas and who I still almost every time start to call Tommy Tommy Lane, which is not the same. I, every time I have to stop and think which name I'm trying to say. Lane Thomas and Randy Rosarena, who proved everything they really needed to offensively in AAA. They just didn't get the same opportunity to do that in their time at the big leagues. And, and of course we talked last week about Lane Thomas and the big game he had when he finally did get a chance to start and all of that. Um, that's a whole nother story, but I do think that it is like you said, more of a reflection on the overall roster or, or lineup, I guess that there isn't someone that seems to definitively fit into that role than it is, you know, a, a, a judgment on Tommy Edmund himself. But mm-hmm. uh, we could, and I'm sure we'll continue to talk about this. I want to sort of shift gears because this has come up a couple of times recently. And, and in talking about lineup construction, I think we really start to see the evidence of some of this 
in how we talk about who fits where in a lineup. There was a discussion that came up today. A Bob Nightingale article came out with comments from some older, some Hall of Fame player types, Lou Piniella, uh, Pete Rose, Joe Madden, basically talking about what a terrible game baseball is in 2019 which I've made my opinion quite clear on. I think that's the absolute worst way to promote a thing is by talking about how bad it is. But it does bring up an interesting discussion. I know we kind of fall on opposite sides of this uh, a little bit. So I'm curious to see what your take is. And then I guess I didn't get to hear it. I don't know if you heard the the Will Clark (laughs) interview tonight. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I heard it. But I was I thought it was pretty appropriate that that happened right before we had already decided to talk about this. Uh, And correct me if I'm wrong, but basically the gist of that was Will Clark basically saying baseball is terrible in 2019. He was basically goose gossage on steroids. Uh, 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 it was as scripted as you can imagine. So I, I, I think I have a couple points on this. Okay. One, it's not, in my opinion, Goose Gossage or Will Clark's job to like promote the game or grow the game. Joe Madden might be a different story. I should be clear also, I didn't read Bob Nightingale's piece. Um, I, I'm more, I saw terrible. the reactions <laughs> and I read Dane Perry's article on CBS Sports today kind of about the Nightingale piece, uh, which was a really good article. But no, I I did not read the initial piece. I am by no means like with Gossage or with Will Clark. And let me give you a Cliff Notes version of what Will Clark said. He said, the game today is too soft. He said, there are too many rules. They're protecting too many players at second plate. You know, like you can't, you can't like at second plate, you know, second base basically said you can't like, you know, make contact with players anymore. When they asked him about analytics, he said, just throw it out the window. And he started talking about launch angle, basically saying it's stupid. You either hit the ball well or you don't. Um, He was saying a bunch of really, really kind of what I would call dumb things. Um, And I'm always careful when I say that because look, he was a very great player in the game and I was nowhere near the game and will never be anywhere near the game. So I I have a respect for people who have played. Uh, That said, what he said was pretty stupid. But from what I gather from the Nightingale piece was kind of commentary on where baseball is today and kind of like the three true outcomes. And I think there are valid complaints about that. And I think you should be allowed to talk about it without it being like, oh, gosh, like, uh, can't you just enjoy the game? Like, you know, no, of, of course, I love baseball. I'm not going to start stop watching baseball because there's like so many home runs. But I think you should be allowed to mention if you think the product is not as good as it could be or, or should be. Um, it, it almost reminds me of like uh, Wimbledon in the mid '90s when like Pete Sampras and Goran Ivanišević would be playing a match, and they were probably the two best grass court players at that time, and they would be serving 140 miles per hour. And uh, yeah, they were great, but it wasn't that much fun to watch because it was just a bunch of aces, and there were never really any rallies. That's kind of how I feel baseball can feel can be sometimes. I, I think Dane Perry mentioned in his article that. You know, walks, strikeouts, and home runs account to account for almost 35% of all plate appearances in baseball. And to me, that's really high. And I do think there are too many home runs. I think you should be allowed to say that and to examine why that is and have an opinion that I don't think this is the best brand of baseball we could have without being like Goose Gossage or, you know, Will Clark or any of these guys who kind of you know, almost sound like they're doing it in bad faith just because they're like, well, you know, when I played, the game was so much better um, and now it sucks. Uh, And and you always kind of have to be wary of that. But I also feel like this happens a lot in other sports too. Like, you know, we see this in basketball a lot. Like, you know, in the 90s, the game was more physical and tougher or, you know, the three-point shot has basically just turned basketball into a freak show or or whatever. So baseball isn't the only other sport that has this problem. And the last thing I, I will say is I think we overreact too much when these old guys say this stuff. And I think we also worry too much about growing the game. The game seems to be doing pretty well. Like, I know we worry about, like, the kids and stuff, I guess. But believe me, a kid is not going to be watching Will Clark, a guy they probably don't even remember, maybe have never even heard of. Uh, We're talking about, like, a 12-year-old. 
they're not going to watch Will Clark on the Cardinals broadcast say some stupid things about launching and be like, well, that's it. I don't like baseball anymore. So I do think sometimes these complaints about, you know, are we promoting the game the right way? Are we dragging the game down? Are way overblown, almost to the point where, you know, when someone's being a really annoying and then the clap back to the annoying people gets to be so strong that they're almost more annoying than the original annoying people. Like, I don't think we've hit that level yet, but I do think we're getting dangerously close to it sometimes. Yeah. So, so, but that's my, t- I know you have a different take <laughs> on it. Um, and so maybe I'm just like the old geezer um, of the group right now, which is always possible, by the way. No, I'm, I'm not. I, I, I do play that role from time to time <laughs> because I think that is who I am. Maybe so. I think I, again, I think it's an interesting conversation to have because I'm not in a position to say, oh, I think baseball is fine. I think that everything about baseball is like it should be. And we should stop trying to figure out how to make it better. Like, I don't really, I'm not in a position where I feel like that's accurate. And these are conversations that we should have, right? If you think there are too many home runs and too many strikeouts, then that's fine. But maybe the conversation should be, okay, why is that the case now? And what can we do to to alter that and not necessarily how that's killing the game, right? So when the three-point shot sort of took over basketball, they didn't get rid of the three-point shot. They just sort of found other ways for basketball to be interesting. And it's a very different game, you're right, than it was, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. But the fact that... What bothered me about the article is that the premise was baseball is unwatchable. And that it's unrecognizable as what baseball should be. And the sort of hook for this story was uh, Joe Madden is complaining about some of the things that are modern baseball related, but he doesn't have a choice. He actually has to sit through these games. Other guys like Goose Gossage, this was a, this was the line. This was the direction in the first like three paragraphs, paragraphs of this piece was that Goose Gossage and Pete Rose and Lou Pinella they have another option, they can turn it off or they can change the channel or whatever. And that's that's where it feels to me like it's doing a disservice to what baseball players today are actually accomplishing. And that's where I feel like the attention should be. I mean, is it less exciting to watch a bunch of home runs and strikeouts as opposed to, you know, doubles and singles and rallies and whatever? Maybe. I have made very well known that I actually prefer doubles to home runs for that reason, because they can keep a rally going. But to, to, to just say that the game that is being played now is unrecognizable and you should just change the channel because it's not even worth your time. I mean, what's happening on a baseball field night in and night out is still pretty remarkable even if it isn't the same kind of remarkable as it was 60 years ago. And I just, it bothers me when that's the sort of representation of older Hall of Fame players speaking about the game anymore. So I don't know, I guess a couple of things. First of all, the fact that it's unrecognizable doesn't necessarily, first of all, an exaggeration, I think, but secondarily, the fact that something isn't what it used to be isn't necessarily bad, right? There are a lot of things in life (laughs) that adapt and evolve and grow and change. And just because it's different than it used to be doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's different. So that in in and of itself, I think is a bad premise. Are we overreacting to this? Maybe, but look, attendance numbers in baseball are going down. And if we continue to say that it's because the game is bad, Maybe kids aren't listening to that, but maybe their parents are and they don't watch as much baseball or they don't put their kids in baseball or whatever. So is it Pete Rose's job to <laughs> to grow the game? No, but disparaging it every chance he has to talk about it doesn't seem like a great place to be coming from. And, and it's frustrating to me as a fan who cares about the players on the field in 2019 to constantly hear that what they're doing isn't good enough to be spoken of in the same breath as what happened 60 years ago. And that's what this piece basically represented. Okay, so here's why maybe I just don't care about these pieces. It seems like this article is written every year. Anytime 
you write an article like this and your go-to quotes are going to be Pete Rose and Goose Gossage, you know exactly what you're getting. Then talk to other people. Well, then, sure. That's certainly on Nightingale. That's on um, whoever else is writing these articles. But But, they write what gets read. But for every Nightingale piece I don't read, there are 50 pieces of of wonderful baseball analysis on a gazillion different sites that do they have the same influence and reach as Nightingale USA Today? Uh, Some might, you know, not all, but, you know, some do. You know, why aren't we talking more about like what Sam Miller is writing at ESPN? Like, why are we talking about, I don't know, whoever else is actually writing very, very interesting things about baseball? We always fall for this trap, which is, here, I'm going to give Pete Rose a microphone. He's going to say dumb things and let's all react like something horrible in the world just happened. When no, it's just an older guy talking about like baseball. And like, I really disagree uh, with the idea that this is why attendance, like to me, attendance has a lot of very varying factors. Like the games are a little, it's too expensive to go to the games now. Right. But we that's what we should be writing. That's what we should be writing. Not the People game's are. bad now. People are. We just are. It doesn't get the attention because it doesn't have Pete Rose's name attached to it. It doesn't get the attention because we aren't all lining up to make these people trend on Twitter because like 50, like, like, let me ask you this. When of every interaction or every time you ran into someone talking about the Nightingale column, how many were positive and how many were negative of a ratio? 50 to one? Yeah, I haven't seen anyone talking positively about that article. Exactly. It's just people complaining about it. It's no one saying like, wow, this has really opened my eyes to what baseball is about. It's like, no, it's just everyone yelling about a bunch of Pete Rose quotes, which he's been saying dumb things for 30 years now. And I I understand. I get your point. But then show me the opposite. My complaint is is then find it. Somebody write that story. Somebody talk to an older player that's a legend, that's a Hall of Famer, that's still involved in the game. Bring Matt Holiday back onto the broadcast like they do sometimes. Write about his involvement in the game. Talk about what other guys are doing to stay involved in baseball. My complaint isn't with people thinking that that's good writing. My complaint is that the people who have access to write stories about baseball choose that as the story to write. And look, we, it's Bob Nightingale. I don't, <laughs> he, that's a whole other conversation. This is what he does. So it's not because it's a Bob Nightingale piece. It's not a Bob Nightingale story. There are other people who do this and you're right. It's written every year. It doesn't matter who it is, but there are other stories to write that aren't getting written in favor of saying, ah, sabermetrics is bad. And it's just, it's lazy and it's not interesting and it's not a good use of the access that these people have to the players at their disposal. But don't you think we're, we're almost like elevating these voices by the way we make these articles trend on Twitter and go crazy about it instead of just being like, you know, I, I didn't read it because I just wasn't interested in it. Um, the only reason I even found out this article exists because people were yelling about it on Twitter, like we have so much at our disposal now when it comes to baseball writing that it's very now, I'm going to catch myself and say, you know, we're probably of more unique, I guess, niche field of people who really read a lot about baseball. And maybe just your casual fan reads more USA Today or Sports Illustrated or ESPN. 100% they do. That's how Bob Nightingale has a following. Sure, sure. But I would say even at like those those publications like this article is is more rare than i guess positive articles about baseball and the last thing i'll say in defense of nightingale's article which again i did not read there is an audience for this there there are people who feel this way about baseball and i'm not talking about what i was saying earlier about the home run thing but just about how like oh like it's unwatchable. I don't want to, you know, I, you know, I, I turn it off. I find it boring. I talk to like people pretty often who think baseball is kind of boring. So I think we need to be honest with ourselves that this audience who used to consume baseball, perhaps more exists, meaning this audience that no longer finds baseball watchable. These people are out there and like, 
was Nightingale's article with those quotes written in bad faith? Probably. But that doesn't negate the fact that there are people out there who feel this way about baseball. And that's exactly why I think that people who don't feel that way about baseball have just as much of a reason to voice their opposing opinion about it and say, no, I think you're, if there's a problem with baseball, then let's talk about why let's not just trash baseball. And that's all these seem to be doing. I I, look, I don't want to, I don't want to argue this in bad faith either. Right. There's a conversation to be had. There are things to discuss about what could make baseball better or what could make it more interesting to fans in the, stands as well as fans at home i think there's a huge conversation to be had about the accessibility of baseball whether it's playing the game or going to games because of the cost that is just astronomical more and Mm -hmm. more all the time i think there's a huge conversation to be had there and part of that conversation is yes home runs and strikeouts is that really where we want the future of baseball to go and if not how do we combat that in a way that doesn't then take away from the work that the athletes who are currently playing the game have already done but it doesn't do any good to reinforce this idea that baseball is just bad turn it off because there's an audience for it like why write that story well it's, it's, I don't like, I, again, I don't like Nightingale. I don't follow Nightingale. I don't read any of his tweets, but it's not his job to promote baseball. He's telling what he thinks is an honest, I assume he's telling what he thinks is an honest story. And as a journalist, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not promoting Nightingale here, but he, look, he writes for USA Today. He's a journalist. As a journalist, that is his job. Not, it's not his job to, promote baseball that is the commissioner's job that's you know a bunch of that's dewitt's job that's you know that's the owner's job that is not nightingale's job um if he wants to you know keep reaching out to you know i don't know all these you know whoever the you know main curmudgeons are of past baseball players and, and people want to keep reading that you know that's fine uh i choose to ignore it because I'm able to. We have so much stuff out there. Um, And even though, like I said, I have uh, some complaints about the way baseball is played today, it's still an awesome sport. I still try to watch as many Cardinals games as I can, as I know you do too. So I I totally agree that the idea that like it's unwatchable or it doesn't even look like baseball anymore, like that's just absurd. That's not the case at all. But I I do think, I don't know. I, I I'm not going to say anything that's not repeating myself, but I just, I just feel as though we do overreact. I do have a question Let's stipulate that the ball is juiced and that MLB knows the ball is juiced. And I'm making an assumption there. I don't know that's the case at all. Uh, But let's say it is. That's a pretty big thing, stupid thing for MLB to do in this era of just dominant pitchers who are striking people. I mean, that's, that's, you know, there's several reasons, I guess, why people might be striking out more, whether it's like, you know, selling out for power. But I think the most obvious answer, right, would be like pitchers are just better. You yeah. know, it's it's they're they're it's harder to get wood on a baseball with the way these guys throw now. So let's say that is the case. Let's say baseball isn't wild about um, three true outcomes. Uh, having a juice ball in this era seems like a really bad idea, right? <laughs> yeah, it it does. You know, it seems like. Yeah, you're right. It does. And and I guess the reason I'm hesitating, I, I don't know. I guess I just struggle with the idea of, look, we all watched when home runs became the reason people wanted to tune up into a game every night, right? We mm-hmm. talk about Sosa and Maguire. We talk about all these years where, you know, the, the home run race was the thing. And then all of a sudden we want to turn around and talk about how, players basically building themselves as athletes to hit home runs is actually bad for the game. So I I just feel like it's a little bit, I don't know, convoluted to try to say that home runs are the reason. And to your point, I don't know that it is the most interesting version of the game, but it's what it's the, the natural trajectory of what baseball became. And that's how players sort of 
crafted roles for themselves in what baseball does look like today. It's not their fault that that's the evolution of the game. And in order to survive in it or find a place in it, they had to become the prototype that fit the mold, right? So then to turn around and say, it's it's just like pitchers, right? We talk about how pitchers who can't throw 100 miles an hour maybe don't have a place in a modern bullpen, right? It's not It's not their fault. It's not Jordan Hicks's fault that he can throw 100 miles an hour, so he does. So he's not the crafty, lefty, you know, throws 88 miles an hour's tops and no one can touch him. Like, that was a version of pitching in the past that doesn't really exist anymore. So... Yeah, I mean, if baseball is doing something to sort of force (laughs) one of those outcomes, it seems like it's probably not a place to meddle because the game is going to do that in its own way. But it's really not fair then to fault the athletes for playing the game the way that it evolved over the years either. Let me be clear. I don't think I'm not, I'm not at all advocating for, for the idea that we have to like tear the whole sport down um, because I find this current brand not as enjoyable as perhaps a different brand. Like, no, I, I think you're absolutely correct. Like if this is the natural evolution of where the game has gone, meaning um, has nothing to do with, uh, you know, uh, juiced baseballs or, or whatever, then yeah, th- this is where we are, and you and know, even if it is juiced baseballs, it's still not the players that are doing it. No, but so. it, but it's if, if if baseball is going to complain about people writing these articles, then uh, hey, maybe don't juice your baseball. Right. Maybe you shouldn't be juicing your baseballs. No, b- believe me, I'm not blaming the players, the current players at all. It's all it's also not baseball's job to like uh, craft the game so it's uh, perfect to my liking. So. It, it, I definitely don't want, because of the way baseball is with the three true, uh, excuse me, the three true outcomes. I don't want like the sport to be tinkered with, whether it's like the ball, unless it's just like undoing something that they did, which is causing this era to be more um, exaggerated. I guess. Sure. Yeah, and that's well, this is the conversation I think we should be having. <laughs> yeah, and I just I would like to see this conversation exist in more places than you know, sort of the niche baseball content that we're involved in so much because it's I, look. I guess I guess part of my problem is that I am around enough people who don't find baseball interesting, and they're they're sort of look. They're people that I like. They're friends uh, and and people that I work with that will sort of resort to these same kind of lazy, well, there are too many strikeouts or the games are too long or what. And it's not because they actually watch enough baseball to know that it's because that's what the national headlines are. So I get frustrated when the national headlines are the things that people recite that are constantly bad about the game, as opposed to, here's a conversation about what we can do to make the game better. And believe me, pitch clocks and, you know, whatever, that's, <laughs> that's not going to change the game enough to, I don't think, make it, air quotes, more watchable at this point when that's not really, yeah. I don't think, the, the issue. Look, I did a game in uh, Chicago over the weekend. It was the national... Um, professional fast pitch softball championships there there are not like three and a half minute commercial breaks in that show and the game was over in like two hours and 15 minutes right it's not necessarily the game entirely that's the problem it's the overall packaging right so there are lots of conversations to be had i i'm going down another rabbit no no this is here because I care a lot about this because not only do I work in it, but it's also something that I love just in my free time. And it bothers me when the trending topics about the game are negative. And then you find out that that's coming from the legends that came before. And I don't care if it's Pete Rose or if it's Bob Gibson, right? Like you talk to those guys who have a name and they have a voice that matters. I I will say, I, I personally do think games are too long. But I don't want any sort of synthetic tinkering to, to I guess to I guess change that. I, I remember uh, an old Joe Sheehan essay um, or newsletter piece. I guess you know he he kind of explained why games are long. It's like, look, 
these relief pitchers who come in and they seem like they're taking so long between each pitch, like this is their livelihood, you know, we kind of just have yeah. to live with this because the reason why they're taking so long is because their page, their future paycheck may depend on like, you know, the next pitch they throw. So this is just kind of where the sport has gone. And we kind of just have to live with it. There are certainly things we can do to speed it up a little bit, I guess. But for the most part, this is baseball now. And as I can say a million times, it's yeah, do I think it's games are a little bit too long? Yes. Is it the worst thing in the world? Not not even close. We still love baseball. We're still in very good shape. Uh, I do want to read a quote, though, because this is one of my favorite pieces of writing that kind of is on this issue. Um, And this was leading into the 2018 season. Um, And mind you, the 2019 season, we're getting ready to smash the home run record that, I don't know, for all I know, was set last year. So, So it's even worse now, basically, than it was before the 2018, before this season even started. And this is an essay... In the 2018 Baseball Prospectus Annual by uh, Jason uh, Wojciechowski, uh, hope I'm saying that correctly. I'm probably not. Um, but he, this is in the middle of the essay he wrote on the Giants, um, on the San Francisco Giants, and he was talking about how the Giants were trying to somehow find a way with their roster to find more home run hitters because, as we all know, AT and T Park or Oracle Park, I think as it's now called, uh, is not the most home run friendly park. And he writes. The thing of it is, the Giants should not have been looking to fix their dinger problem in the first place because their dinger problem isn't in fact a problem. All these homers and the majors aren't good. They're bad, actually. Yes, it's fun watching Stanton and Judge chase records and big round numbers. It's fun seeing Reese Hoskins and Matt Olson do as much damage as human pos- as humanly possible ah, as any human possibly could in as little time as you can imagine. At a certain point, though, homers become exhausting. It's exhausting that 41 players hit 30 or more homers. It's exhausting that a man named Scooter hit four or more in a game and 27 overall. We can vouch for that, I think, Tara. Um, it's, it's, it's exhausting that Matt Davidson, a well-below replacement player, hit 26. It's exhausting that Matt Napoli hit 193 dot, 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 and 29 bombs. I was at an Angels-Rangers game last year with two friends, and we got up to get beers and snacks. We came back to find out we'd missed a Joey Gallo dinger to straightaway center. Ho-hum, we all said. It's just a homer. Turns out it was not just a homer. It was the second longest homer hit all season. And yet, I still cannot get worked up about having missed it. There were 6,104 other others last year, and each one of those 6,104 were the very best thing the hitter could possibly do in that situation. Eat your favorite food 6,104 times and you start craving turnips. End of quote. And that's kind of how I feel about the home runs. I love home runs. I don't need to see them all the time. Yeah. How we fix that, I don't know. It might not be fixable and I'll just have to live with that. And that, I think, is the question. So uh, I'm curious what you all think if you want to join in to this conversation. Uh, What is the solution to maybe the issue of the three true outcomes or maybe the issue of, I don't know, what is the actual problem? Maybe we should start there before we start trying to find solutions, Uh, whether it's the grumpy old veterans (laughs) or not. um, We can can discuss that at a later time. The point is, you know, baseball is important to a lot of people for a lot of reasons. And I think that, you know, just because it's different doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad. That also doesn't mean that it's perfect. So there's plenty of room for this conversation to continue. And I hope that it does because I hope that people care enough about the game um, to continue to have this conversation. I think we've said more than enough on it for tonight. So Alex, I'm going to turn it over to you for the chirp of the week at this point. Okay, so uh, speaking of uh, dingers, I'm going to talk about a, a couple of dingers that were hit on July 19th, 2004. Uh, that's the date we're going back to. Um, so Jim Edmonds was in the booth this weekend for the series in Cincinnati, and he was talking. Uh, I don't know how they got on the subject. I was kind of half listening, but the subject of Carlos Zambrano came up. And Carlos Zambrano, who is actually like younger than me, but he's been retired for 10 years somehow. He retired very early. He also sprung <laughs> onto the scene very early. Um, he's currently, someone might know better than me what exactly is happening, but he's currently making some sort of comeback with the Chicago Dogs and the American Association, which is an, an independent baseball league. But he and Jim Edmonds have kind of a colorful history. Uh, 
Going back again to July 19, 2004, this was, for me, the most memorable game from a very memorable regular season. Edmonds' first trip to the plate, Zambrano plunked him. His second trip to the plate, Edmonds hit a home run. And as Edmonds uh, sort of liked to do, he didn't exactly sprint around the bases like Bryce Harper did uh, a couple days ago when he hit that walk-off <laughs> grand slam against the Cubs. And Edmund and, uh, excuse me, Zambrano, um, who was a pretty fiery guy, didn't appreciate uh, Edmonds not uh, running out the home run and was yelling at him the entire time as Edmonds was circling the bases, which was obvious as seen to everyone but Edmonds. Uh, if I recall, Edmonds didn't even know there was a commotion until he sat down on the bench and someone told him that, you know, Zambrano was like screaming at you while, while you were rounding the bases. And uh, Edmonds was basically like, really? I had no idea. He came up again in the third inning and Zambrano struck him out and then kind of did the uh, Tara. Are you familiar with the Dikimbi Matumbo finger wag? Yes. Yeah, he, he did that at him <laughs> as he walked back to the dugout. Well, they faced one more time, and this was in the eighth inning. And it helps to know what happened right before the at-bat. And this had been a tense game, obviously, already. We had two very good teams. You know, the Cubs, the Cardinals were awesome this year, but the Cubs were pretty good too. Um, so this was a very important game. It was a nationally televised game. And Scott Rowland hit a two-run homer in the eighth to break a 3-3 tie. And this was off Zambrano. He was still in the game at this point. He probably should have been pulled. He was already up to 107 pitches. Uh, and in strolls Edmonds, again, he probably has no idea that Zambrano is about to erupt, even though it was completely obvious to every single person who was watching. <laughs> and as, as everyone knew was about to happen, Zambrano clearly intentionally threw right at him and plunked Edmonds. Um, Edmonds didn't think much and didn't think too much of it and took his base. Zambrano before basically before uh, the ball even hit Edmonds, uh, already like just like marched to the dugout. Like he he didn't even wait for the umpire um, to throw him out, which uh, which I thought was uh, pretty awesome. <laughs> so he hit he hit uh, Edmonds twice in that game, and he also hit him one other time in his career. Uh, and so I believe, as I saw earlier, Edmonds, uh, he plunked Edmonds more than anyone else he faced for his career. Zambrano also hit 20 batters that season, which led the National League. Uh, funny thing is, they went on to become teammates for a very uh, short period when Edmonds, remember when Edmonds was on the Cubs? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Zambrano was on those teams too, and uh, they were teammates. And it sounds like from... Uh, Edmund's um, version of events, that everything was fine and that they grew to like each other and um, all was good. But I remember that game very well. Uh, it was, again, I think the most memorable game from that regular season. The Carls ended up winning that game 5-4 to four on their way to winning 105 games. Um, and yes, that's July 19, 2004, the night when Edmonds uh, got the best of Carlos Zambrano. Um, and that is your Chirp of the Week. And I guess you can follow Carlos Zambrano's comeback as he's trying to make it with the Chicago Dogs. Someone mentioned he was throwing 97 still, uh, which seems quite fast for a guy who's, <laughs> what, 38, 39. But, yeah. Do you have any Edmonds or Zambrano memories? Uh, so, first of all, the uh, softball tournament I was just talking about was played at a complex where the Chicago Bandits, the Chicago team in that league, plays, which is they play in – across the parking lot from the facility where the Chicago dogs play. Uh, so I was just there and saw that stadium. And then I saw something on Twitter, probably about him hitting 97, presumably on a gun and didn't, that was the first I realized that he was still playing baseball in any form. But the other thing that I will say is that it's funny that you bring up Zimbrano because I feel like if this is going to sound weird, but I feel like if you think of a particular team and there's one player that sort of defines how you think about that team, <laughs> for me, Carlos Zambrano is how I think about the Chicago Cubs, uh, in part because many of those like very formative years of me, you know, investing my time and energy in baseball involved the Carlos Zambrano years in, in Chicago and the explosive nature of his relationship with both the Cubs and the Cardinals, because let's all remember his, uh, his emotion was not contained just 
in uh, being directed at the opponents all the time. And I, I don't know, I guess I feel like the volatility of Carlos Zambrano is how I felt about the Cubs as a whole for a long time in that every time the Cubs and the Cardinals played, it could reach that sort of fever pitch very quickly regardless of what the final score ended up being. So every time I think about Carlos Zambrano, I think that that's how I feel about the Cubs in general, yeah. even post Zambrano. <laughs> yeah, he definitely, uh, he definitely captures those kind of mid-aughts Cubs teams, I yeah. think, very, very well. Uh, one more thing I'll say about Edmonds, um, and you can delete or edit this if you want to, um, but my wife is a casual baseball fan. Um, she's actually a fan of the Chicago Cubs, uh, believe it or not. But what she is not a casual fan of, what she is a big fan of, is the Housewives. Okay. The real housewives of fill in the blank. And um, for the first time, I think, since uh, we have known each other, she brought breaking news to me about a cardinal and that car- um, a couple months, about a month ago or two months ago, and that cardinal was Jim Edmonds. And I'm going to leave it at that. I do. I do. Oh, okay. That's probably not how he wants to be uh, breaking <laughs> news these days, but you know, it, it happens apparently. Uh, anyway. <laughs> That's Jim Edmonds and Carlos Zambrano <laughs> and the weird relationships they have to baseball in our brains. That is the show, ladies and gentlemen. That went a lot longer than I expected it to. Um, as you can tell, I have very strong feelings about some of these things, uh, as well as, you know, just a lot to discuss about Tommy Edmond and and all of all that comprises that story for the Cardinals right now. Uh, so feel free, like I said, join in the conversation. Let us know what you think. At Tara Wellman, at AlexCard79, at Birds on the Black. You know the drill. Thanks for listening. As always, we appreciate your support and your comments and your involvement in this little show that we do every week. Thanks so much for your time. We'll be back with you next week. Until then, I'm Tara. He's Alex. 